We've come to your nation to deliver a very important message. America loves Poland, and America loves the Polish people. Thank you. Well, I think it was Russia, and I think it could have been other people in other countries. Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows for sure. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Josh King, author of Offscript, hosting this weekend's show as the G20 conference in Hamburg, Germany, otherwise known as the International Congress of the Foreign Policy Blob, concludes for another year, closing the chapter on one global gathering, just as planning for the next, APEC in Da Nang, Vietnam, begins to heat up. Trump in Vietnam. Talk about optics. Trumpcast is the show about the man whose second trip to Europe has managed to conclude without our president shoving another NATO leader aside on his way to the family photo. Early on in the trip, a visit to Poland. Cheering crowds bust in from the burbs, and a roughly $8 billion check written in Polish Zloty to a Massachusetts company called Raytheon for the purchase of Patriot missiles to defend themselves against Russia, which was the centerpiece of the trip. That long-awaited face-to-face with Vladimir Putin, a meeting that has raised the ire of almost everyone back home, except the president and his small circle, and the mainstream media. Fake news in Trump's parlance, which gets hours upon hours of fresh content from those speculating what's going on behind closed doors. And it's behind those closed doors that we're going to talk about today, with Max Bergman, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, who in January finished up six years at Foggy Bottom as a member of the Secretary of State's foreign policy planning staff. We'll talk to him about Trump's trip, about Rex Tillerson's management strategy, and his own journey of political evolution as an American diplomat right after the break. Max Bergman, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a six-year veteran as a political appointee of the U.S. State Department, and this week the author in Politico magazine, of Present at the Destruction, How Rex Tillerson is Wrecking the State Department. Max, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Max, what I want to, there's plenty of punditry going around about how this meeting is going on, but I want to really go behind the scenes of how these meetings work and what really gets talked about. I was watching German Chancellor Angela Merkel earlier as she convened the G20 thanking the Sherpas for all their amazing work. And this is what Sherpas do. They work long into the night. Had this been last year at the G20 in Hangzhou, China, that very meeting where President Obama pulled President Putin aside and told him to cut it out regarding Russian meddling, and President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry were there, what would have a Max Bergman and his colleagues at state have been doing in the months leading up to and right up to that trip? You know, the leading up to these summits usually requires a ton of work, both in preparing the agenda for for the meeting. So the writing of the talking points that the president and the secretary of state would use in these meetings would be something that would take weeks, if not months, to prepare for. And in that process, there's a full vetting of kind of what, you know, what the uh, other country wants, what they're going to bring to the table, what we want to get out of the meeting. So it would have been, there's been a, lo- a ton of preparation. The other aspect, though, is that meeting with Russia would just, meeting with Putin would just be one part of this, of a broader strategy, which would also involve 
meeting with our allies to sort of uh, foreshadow what we were going to uh, try to talk to Putin about. So, you know, on the agenda, if this were one year ago, we'd be talking about, you know, the Russian meddling in our election and Russian meddling in not just our election, but the French election, the Dutch election. We would be going on uh, discussing Ukraine in detail and in meeting with the Ukrainians prior to meeting with the Russians to get their take on what we should talk to them about. So there would be an, uh, would have been also a lot of pre-meeting meetings. And really, none of that seems to have occurred prior to the meeting with President Trump because he's going without apparently any agenda to talk to Vladimir Putin about. So, Max Bergman, this is not a tete-a-tete or a pull-aside. These words that people like you and me would use as we plan these trips uh, that are, to me, so quaint, but have such high stakes around the periphery of these meetings. This is a full-fledged meeting. And yet the manifest for this meeting is interesting because it doesn't have note-takers like Mike McFall. It has six participants, two heads of state, two foreign ministers, and uh, two interpreters. How is that different from the way a meeting with a Russian president would have been held in the past? And what does that tell you? So it, it tells me that that Vladimir Putin had already sort of won the first, you know, the the first move of this chess match. Um, that Putin prefers smaller meetings that you can uh, potentially manipulate the person across the table more more easily. And what is highly concerning is that there's all the government, all the experience, the government experience is on one side of the table, the Russian side of the table. And with President Trump and Secretary Tillerson, we have, com- you know, combined uh, experience lasting just until they, they, uh, till January 20th. So the probably most experienced person on the U.S. side of the table is pr- uh, in government is probably the translator. <laughs> so, so it's really concerning. It's it's in fact incredibly troubling that H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, and Fiona Hill, who's the Senior Director for Russia on the National Security Council, are in Hamburg, are there, and yet aren't in the meeting. Normally, what would have happened is the United States would have said, "No, we are not meeting unless these other people are are involved." We would have insisted, and it would have put potentially the meeting in jeopardy. But the fact that that wasn't insisted upon, and in fact, you know, we don't know whose idea this was to have such a small meeting. It's ra- it's rather troubling because you know U.S. interests are at stake, so we f- effectively don't have season season negotiators at the table, and so it, it's it's quite troubling just the lack of a staffing and experience that is the U.S. is presenting at the at the negotiating table. And you mentioned the two people who are not at the table: H.R. McMaster, Fiona Hill. There could have been others. You'd think you could trust that these two could keep their notes close hold or limited distribution. And yet when President Trump met in the Oval Office with Foreign Minister Lavrov and uh, and Kislyak, the ambassador, the notes got out pretty fast and created no end of embarrassment for the president. So to what extent is this also an advantage for the way President Trump wants to play things that when the readout comes, the readout is only from him, either at the podium of the briefing room, uh, on background on Air Force One, but there are not going to be these detailed notes that would have been circulated throughout the NSC and state. You know, perhaps that was the the president's concern about about leaks, but that, in fact, says something rather ominous about the administration. If they can't trust the National Security Advisor and their senior most expert on Russia that was appointed to work in the White House, 
then we have a real problem. And, you know, one of the things that happens is that if you don't trust the people working for you and you show very little faith in them, then sometimes that's reciprocated. You know, when it, we go back to the Oval Office meeting, the fact that they weren't able to figure out who leaked it, I think, tells me that there was a number of people in the meeting. The notes were probably circulated to people who had uh, a right and need to know within the White House. And someone in that circle was quite concerned and then leaked it to the press. So that is, I think if I were any White House would be, would be troubled by the fact that, that the notes of a meeting that they didn't want out got leaked. But the solution to that is not to simply go into a shell and close yourself off. The solution is to regain the trust of your employees. And if you feel like you can't trust them, then you need to find other employees. And so I, I just find this whole thing that, you know, you would bring the national security advisor to the meeting or to Hamburg, as well as your Russia expert, and then not have them in the meeting, not insist that they're there, quite troubling. And actually for H.R. McMaster, this is the, the second time that at least we know of where he's been sort of completely dissed when when uh, President Trump went to Israel. It was Trump and Jared Kushner that met with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu while Tillers, uh, uh, McMaster waited out in the hallway. And that's frankly absurd. You know, the National Security Advisor, if they're with the president on a trip, should be in the meeting. That's why they have that job. And I was on many trips when uh, Sandy Berger was that national security advisor and in those meetings. Just a technical question, though, Max. Trump had speculated that there might be tapes of his conversations with James Comey. What about the technical setup of, of a six-person meeting and whether there is a agreement on both sides that, well, we want to keep this meeting small and intimate, but let's have a recorder going so that our officials and note takers can deconstruct what happened and analyze it. But for the purposes of an intimate face-to-face meeting, we don't need 12 people in the room. Six will do. That's something I, I frankly haven't heard of happening before. That um, I, I don't think the president of the United States would consent to being, re- you know, record having a meeting uh, recorded. That's usually what the note takers are for. And, you know, in this case, I guess Secretary Tillerson is effectively the, the note taker. Presumably meeting, I mean, meetings have definitely been recorded in the past, but that is not something that I think is standard diplomatic practice and one that I think, you know, we would uh, consent to. Because frankly, if you ha- if there's an audio of the meeting, it makes it, you would always fear the other side might might leak it. And what that effectively does is, is create a chilling effect. It makes it more like a press conference than uh, than a meeting where you can actually bargain or discuss interests in in a in a in a more frank manner. So diplomatic meetings are designed to be behind closed doors, and so you can speak frankly. And an audio recording would would sort of get in the way of that. Before we get to your article, present at the destruction, how Rex Tillerson is wrecking the State Department, Max. Let's just drop briefly into the first stop in this trip, Poland. Uh, where the president visited Warsaw, was greeted by cheering crowds, bust in from the suburbs, and managed to uh, acknowledge that a large deal had been done with Raytheon for the purchase of $8 billion worth of Patriot missiles. Tell us exactly how these types of transactions and sales work. This is not President Trump giving a brochure of the Patriot to 
uh, his Polish counterpart and saying, you know, want to buy a couple of these. No, this deal had actually been in the works for a long time. I myself had traveled to Poland in 2015 in part to push for this deal. It was Poland agreed to this deal under the previous government. The new government came in, had some qualms, but then uh, reaffirmed its commitment. So this is, I think, just rehashing something that uh, effectively had been uh, agreed to. Now, what what happens in in arms sale negotiations is the first step is the U.S. has to agree to actually sell and provide that weapon system. So oftentimes when we notify Congress of a sale, what we're actually, what the State Department is actually doing is notifying Congress that we are allowing this country to to buy this uh, weapon system. And when they do that, when we do that, then the country, the company, and the U.S. government all have to then negotiate on a price and, and get to get to the finish line. So this the Patriot system is supposed to be... Uh a counterpart to or a deterrent to the S-400 surface-to-air missiles, nuclear-capable Iskander systems uh, that Russia is erecting on the border around Poland. Uh, and then Trump goes into his meeting with Putin. So on the one hand, he's working with Poland to f- prepare to fight against the Russians. On the other hand, he's trying to warm political relations between him and Putin. How does the foreign policy establishment, the NSC and the president square these competing uh, prerogatives? I think it's really difficult to square them. I, you know, I think the president's choice of Poland as as the first stop, I think, was much less about Russia and much less about affirming our, our commitment to Poland's defense, but was really about the fact that Poland is the country that is backtracking backtracking the most in Europe on democracy and human rights is cracking down on freedom of the press in ways that are extremely troubling. Uh, last year, former Deputy Secretary of State Tony Blinken traveled to Poland and had a, a very, t- very tough meetings with them and, and warned them that uh, that if they continue down a path where they're restricting uh, democratic rights and freedom, that that was going to have a real impact on our in our bilater- bilateral relationship. But what we're seeing here is Trump going to Poland, attacking the U.S. press, attacking fake news, standing side by side with the Polish leader and basically affirming Poland's sort of retreat from from democratic norms and values. And that I find extremely troubling. And so I think for the leader of Poland, this was a huge coup. It gave him real political backing from the United States, gives him leverage now when when the European Union is, is going after Poland for its democratic setbacks. It can say, like, you know, look, we have the backing of the United States. So I think that was the major point of going to Poland. And when in Poland, you know, the Poles are very uh, nervous about Russia, very historically anti-Russian. And part of what Trump did is he reaffirmed Article 5 for the first time in Europe. And it was a good place to do it, but it was couched in sort of this broader uh, support for behavior that the United States, frankly, shouldn't be supporting. You mentioned the trip to Poland by uh, Deputy Secretary of State Tony Blinken, uh, a good and old friend of mine. U.S. State Department just got its own Deputy Secretary of State after a many-month uh, vacancy in that job. And let's now th- use that, uh, Max, to pivot to your piece, Present at the Destruction, How Rex Tillerson is Wrecking the State Department. It begins on the scene that you talk about, your first trip back to Foggy Bottom since leaving there January 20th. What did you see? Well, you know, I'd been to a lot of departure ceremonies. You know, they're sort of routine. People move on a lot within the State Department. 
And usually they, they follow a certain pattern. You go, people are sort of quite sad that their colleague is leaving, but then it becomes sort of a celebration of, of your colleague's work and, and during, during their time in government. And then there's sort of some cheesy gifts that are usually exchanged. And then at the end of it, the party usually ends really quickly because people have work to do. It's sad their colleague's leaving, but you know what? They're going to get someone else in and sort of the mission goes on and there's a lot of work to do. Uh, this just felt completely different. It was, everyone was was happy for for the colleague moving on uh, for their time. So there was that celebratory uh, acknowledgement of their work. But at, at the end, it really just felt like a funeral, not, you know, a funeral for the building. It felt, the place felt extremely sad. No one really needed to rush back to go to work, which meant that, you know, I could talk to a lot of uh, uh, former colleagues. And then walking through the halls of the State Department, you could actually see the physical deconstruction of the department where offices that had once been bustling had now been, you know, the furniture had been pulled out and was sitting in the hallways. And when I returned to, to, to one of my old offices, there was one person there. And this was, you know, a midweek afternoon, not a late Friday afternoon in the, in the depths of summer, but midweek. People should have been hard at work. The G20 is coming up. But no, this was a, a, a situation where they had one person in the office effectively keeping the lights on, just maintaining having someone be there, but not uh, not the bustling office space that I, I one, had once seen. So what we're seeing is the gutting of, of the State Department. And we're losing a lot of really good, not just senior officials that are being forced to retire, but now the mid-career folks that are should be the ones that are replacing all the the people that are being pushed out are are they themselves looking to leave? So it was it was really quite sad and depressing. Some of the exact words that you quoted in your piece were chaos, a disaster, terrible. And as you write, this is how diplomacy dies, not with a bang, but with a whimper, with empty offices on a midweek afternoon. Help us understand, Max, how you yourself would be surprised by this, how a person who if you look at your resume, the Center for American Progress, before you came to the State Department as a political appointee under uh, John Kerry, you know you have all the hallmarks. Your parents are both professors of military history as perhaps uh, from the liberal elite foreign policy blob establishment. And yet you sort of had a transformation over those years working directly with former military uh, officials and people who worked in the George W. Bush administration, number one, you would have thought that maybe you would have stayed on had an opportunity presented itself under a Republican administration. And number two, that many of those colleagues that you just talked about were almost excited about Rex Tillerson coming aboard. What happened? Right. For me, when I go back and think about me in my 20s during the, the Bush administration, I, I could never imagine working for the Bush administration. I couldn't ima see how anyone could, could work, work for uh, President Bush, you know, because of the Iraq war and, and all, all sort of other things that he did that I disagreed with. And then going into government was, was really quite eye-opening in that you know, politics could is just extremely dis distant. You know, the the goings on of Capitol Hill might as well be in Timbuktu. That the place doesn't focus on on that. It focuses on how do we advance American interests, how do we protect American security, how do we advance American global leadership in the world, and that's extremely bipartisan. And 
what I found is that instead of working for people don't think of themselves as working for Republican or democratic administrations, they view themselves as working for the country. And that is incredibly rewarding. And so at my time in, in government, you know, I, I was working with, you know, at times people who I discovered were far left Democrats, people who I discovered were far right Republicans and people who, didn't really care at all about politics with, you know, I worked with retired military officers with active duty Marine Corps colonels and, and, and general officers. And so I had a real mix, you know, partly working on the political military space and working a lot with my, with DOD colleagues and politics is just never part of the conversation. If this had been sort of a normal Republican administration, I, I can't say for sure that I, I would have stayed. I, I probably wouldn't have. They probably wouldn't have wanted me to stay. I was a political appointee. But if they asked, if they said, you actually have the right expertise, you're doing important work in this area, we want you to keep doing it. Um, you know, that's something I would have really considered, uh, partly because there's, I don't think, you know, there's no better job actually than working for your country. And that is what people are doing at the State Department. That is why they're there. Daniel Dresner of The Washington Post weighed in with a big piece on Rex Tillerson's sort of six-month report card using your article a little bit as a backdrop. He talked about a survey that has been done by an outside firm called Insignium surveying 35,000 State Department and USAID employees. What was the chatter among your old colleagues about this survey and about the feedback they were giving? And what are you hearing about what was said as a result? Yeah, I, I think the mere fact that 35,000 people took a survey, that's you know, roughly half the State Department, shows you how committed folks were to, to trying to make their voices heard and how committed they are to trying to get the State Department back on track. And what I was hearing from the survey, you know, that it was sort of your standard kind of corporate consulting marketing survey. And but people since took it very seriously and, you know, in the comment sections sort of poured their hearts out about how concerned they were about the, the situation. Now, what their I think their view is that the survey was kind of used as window dressing or will be used as window dressing to give uh, Secretary Tillerson the ability to say, see, I sought input from from the department and to use in, in some ways to use a corporate consulting firm to ask the department what they're thinking. You don't really need to do that. He just literally needs to open his office door and go and talk to some of the the, uh, mid-level career folks or junior career uh, people that are working in the building. He needs to, you know, ask ambassadors or ask, you know, about what their staffs are saying. And so it's very easy to get in, in, you know, people at the State Department love to talk. They love to write, you know, and that's one of the, you know, I think can be a frustration. Sometimes their State Department is too prolific and writes too many memos that are too long. Really, he doesn't need to hire a firm to figure out what people are thinking. He just needs to go and talk to them. The real report card, uh, Max Bergman, of how a secretary of state is doing is not necessarily going to come out of the pages of a survey from Insignium but rather five key stakeholders. And as we conclude our conversation here on Trumpcast, I want to get your take as a former uh, member of the State Department's foreign policy planning staff uh, in the office of the secretary on these key stakeholders. Number one, foreign diplomats. Number two, the press. Number three, other foreign policy principles. Number four, the State Department as a whole. And number five, the president. These were the criteria that Dan Dresner laid out on the uh, on his Washington Post story. And I'd love to get your inside ta- take, beginning with 
How's he doing with other foreign diplomats? So I think with other foreign diplomats, I think people view him as either somewhat irrelevant because it's really all about Trump. And you can see that with the, the issue over Qatar and Saudi Arabia, where the ambassador from UAE just back channels to Jared Kushner and goes around the Secretary of State uh, Tillerson, which then leads to Trump contradicting uh, Tillerson with, with a tweet and at a, at a, a press conference. So I think foreign leaders don't quite know uh, how influential he is. I think they think that he's doesn't quite know what he's doing. You know, on North Korea, he said that, you know, strategic patience is over and that there's going to be a new, a new policy in town that is going to get tougher with North Korea. And now about four or five months later, we're sort of back to the same policy. And so I think people sort of see, don't, don't see a lot of credibility with Tillerson. They, they, they see a novice that doesn't quite know uh, how to work. Washington uh, is not using his, the state department and has, sort of an unclear uh, influence over the White House. The Secretary of State is supposed to speak for the president. And so when there's a lot of contradictions, it, it doesn't doesn't make foreign diplomats confident that he can that he's a trusted interlocutor. Okay. The second major uh, group of stakeholders that are looking at a Secretary of State's performance, the press. I think the press, it's similar to how foreign diplomats are looking at him. I, I think the press are looking at the State Department and are seeing people that are completely cut out of the loop. So some of their contacts and sources, maybe within the building, don't have a lot of influence. And and therefore, they sort of see Tillerson as someone that is kind of cut out of a lot of the, the policy processes, that they, they uh, have a lot of White House sources. I think the Washington Press Corps has got a lot of people in the White House that are talking to them constantly. And they see the influence of people like Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon. And so every once in a while, I think it's, you know, at certain topics, Tillerson's influential, but I think he doesn't know how to, how to work the press. I mean, what we're seeing on the press side also is his unwillingness and inability to really engage with them. The fact that the State Department is holding far fewer uh, daily press briefings, they're not daily anymore, they're bi-weekly, uh, that they, and it, they took sort of months off from briefing the press. Now, it used to be that the State Department podium was the place where you know the the world was sort of watching to see what came out of the state department what was said during that press briefing whether that indicated any sort of minor shift in us policy i don't think anyone is really watching the daily press briefings anymore because you know, if they reflect sort of consensus continued U.S. foreign policy, that's great. But you never know what what the president, President Trump might do. So then one more group, the other foreign policy principles, we see the pictures in the cabinet room, uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis to the president's left uh, and Tillerson to the president's right, reflecting their hierarchy at the very top of the president's cabinet. How's Tillerson doing with his colleagues at the sub presidential level? I think that they don't view him as someone with a lot of influence. I think Mattis, uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis is probably shocked at the deconstruction of the State Department that's going on. You know, Mattis himself with his sort of famous quote that if, if you know, if you reduce the State Department, he's going to have to buy more ammunition is a clear believer in the need for a strong uh, diplomatic corps. And the military is really actually 
learned a lot of the lessons of Iraq, that when we went into Iraq and the State Department was completely sort of cut out of that invasion, what happened was that military officers suddenly had to become experts on public administration, had to negotiate agreements with local mayors and, and, and city councils and in Iraq without the expertise, without the language uh, knowledge. And they were desperate to have the State Department be there side by side with them. And so there's been actually a real recognition of the need for a whole of government approach to military conflict within within the Department of Defense, the need for State Department officers. So I think Secretary of Defense Mattis will look at what's happening and in, in the 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 fleeing of officials um, as as really troubling and as something that really makes his job harder, that makes America less safer, and puts great, great stress uh, potentially on the military because they're now going to have to learn how to be diplomats as well as fi- uh, as well as uh, fighters, and that's not something that we want our the greatest fighting force in the world to have to do. We want them to focus on on fighting and winning wars, not being diplomats as well. We talked about Tillerson's relationship with those within Foggy Bottom at the State Department. You can read more about that in Max Bergman's article, Present at the Destruction. But the final relationship, Max, the most important one with the man who's occupying the Oval Office. It seems like that is where Secretary Tillerson has put all of his chips. Right. And what we have to remember about Secretary Tillerson is that he's a complete newbie to Washington. You know, he's worked in effectively one company his entire life. Uh, he's a product of, of ExxonMobil and worked his way to the top. So he may have some some very good skills to bring to the table, which is part of the reason why actually why a lot of people in the State Department were quite excited for him to be announced. They said, okay, good, we can have someone who who knows corporate management and we've had two jet-setting secretaries in, in Clinton and Kerry. Now we can have a guy that can manage the building. But the thing that I think those that people are now realizing is that by being a neophyte to Washington, he doesn't really have any friends here and he feels beholden to the president and is is seeking to be a good soldier. And I think that is part of the reason why he's going about this uh, effort to effectively implement the Trump's uh, Trump's budget. And and so he is is, I think, being loyal as as much as he can be to to the president and trying to sort of paper over any differences and trying to implement the the president's agenda, which increasingly looks like Steve Bannon's agenda. But I think as as time is is moving on now, uh, there's now sign of some cracks that Secretary Tillerson, who was reported in Politico, had incredibly strong words uh, with the director of White House personnel, uh, who is uh, slow rolling or blocking appointees that Tillerson wanted to make to the State Department. And while that, you know, as many people took that and said, oh, Tillerson now is now unhappy, will he resign? I think I think people need to put that in context. That happens in almost every administration, and it's one thing for Tillerson to, you know, go after a, a more junior figure in the White House. It's one thing if he goes if he does that with the president. And I think that's the next step is Tillerson needs to needs to show some leeway and some sway, and and to do that he needs to really de- both develop his relationship with the president, but also show the president that he can't just be steamrolled all the time. Max Bergman is senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on European security and U.S.-Russia policy, a six-year veteran political appointee at the State Department under President Obama, Secretary John Kerry. Max, thanks so much for joining us on TrumpCast. Thanks a lot for having me.
And that's the show. Just one more thing before we take off. Are you listening to Trump Care Tracker? It's Slate's latest podcast, hosted by Jordan Weissman and Jim Newell, two writers here at Slate. Check out Trump Care Tracker to, well, keep track of all things healthcare related. You can also find Trump Care Tracker on Apple Podcasts or wherever you go to listen to Trumpcast. Also, be sure to follow Trumpcast on Twitter. We're at RealTrumpcast. That's at RealTrumpcast. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Josh King. We'll be back with more Trumpcast next week. <laughs>